Amen. Thank you, Vanitha. Confidence, conviction, certainty, assurance, 100% sure, without question. What, what comes to your mind when I say those words? We're, we live in a world of uncertainty today, and we're reminded of that from at least two angles all the time. First, um, we're constantly reminded that we don't know what's going to happen in the world. So most of us didn't see COVID-19, a global pandemic that shut down travel for months coming. Um, many people did not see the war that broke out just yesterday in Israel and Palestine coming. We don't see earthquakes or floods coming. We don't see rapid changes in the world's financial markets coming. And so we're often reminded that we live in a world of uncertainty, right? That we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And then secondly, we're also reminded from a, another angle, the global culture that we live in today kind of reminds us often that certainty is a bad thing, especially when you're talking about faith or religion. So you might hear people say, you cannot be sure that your religion is the right one, and you can't even be confident that God exists. And if you are, then maybe you don't like science or something like that, right? Um, if you're sure about your faith, you must be crazy. And so we're constantly reminded of uncertainty. So the question becomes, can we really be certain about anything? Can we be sure about our salvation? Can we be sure about God's love for us? And our passage today is really meant to give us absolute certainty in two things, our salvation in Christ and God's love for us in Christ. And so I hope that we walk away today with certainty of those two things, because the world that we live in, the uncertain world, is a cold dark, scary place without certainty for those two things. But with the assurance, with being sure about those two things, there is unimaginable freedom and joy and love and peace. And that's what Paul wants the readers of Romans to see in our passage today that Benitha read. And that's what he wants us to see today. So let me pray for us before we dive in. I'm also just going to pray for the, the war going on right now that just started yesterday. God, thank you so much for um, this time together today to worship you, to open up your word and see what you have to say with the, for, to us, God. I pray that you would awaken our hearts and our minds to the truths about you, God, that we would feel your love. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living in Israel and Palestine right now, God. We pray that you would bring peace, God. We pray that um, you'd do a miracle even um, in something that looks like it's only going to escalate. Would you um, bring peace between leaders? Um, yeah, we pray for protection among the brothers and sisters there. Um, God, we pray that you would work for your glory in this difficult situation. And God, as we look at your word and see who you are today, God, we pray that you would speak to us, God. We need your word. We need your peace. We need your love. We need your joy. And so we ask for it today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So we're going to be in Romans 8, 31 through 39. If you aren't already turned there, you can go ahead and turn there. And if we haven't met, my name's Hunter. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm really excited to open up this passage with you this morning. It's one of the most hopeful passages in the Bible. Um, and so I'm looking forward to it. If you'll go ahead and take a look at Romans 8, 31, Paul begins this passage with a question. He says, what then shall we say to these things? So what are the things that we, we need to say something to? We need to ask that question. And to find out, we need to think about what we've been talking about for the last several weeks and months. Last week, Steve showed us from the book of Romans chapter 8, 26 through 30, how God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and how God is moving people along the road of salvation. He used the example of a like a people mover in the airport. Once you get on, God moves you um, along the path of salvation. And then Paul's been preaching this gospel message throughout Romans. And specifically since chapter 5, verse 1, he's been making the point that we are justified by faith in Jesus, and we have peace with God uh, through Jesus. So the passage that we're looking at this morning really ends that section, and it's really the icing on the cake of the first eight chapters of Romans, of what Paul's trying to get at. So Paul's asking, what do we say to these things that we've been talking about? And he's going to ask some rhetorical questions that we're going to have to give the answer to ourselves uh, from this passage. In verses 31 through 40, uh, 34, he's really telling us one thing, I think, and it's that we can be certain of our salvation in Christ. And so, to help us do that, he asks four more questions. We love Paul's questions in Romans, right? And the first, first one is uh, the second half of verse 31, Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? What do you think the answer is supposed to be to that? Yeah, answer it. What's the answer supposed to be? No one. Yeah, nothing, right? Paul wants us to immediately answer that question with nothing or no one. And Paul gives us the reason that no one can be against us. It's that God is for us. How is God for us? Is it in some general sense that he is just for us up in heaven, like he's kind of rooting for us, like we might root for our, our favorite uh, sports team? Is God up in heaven rooting for us? No. Last week we read in verse 28 that he is actively working on our behalf, all things for our good, right? And not just sometimes, but all the time, and not just in some things, but in all things, right? And the rest of the passage is really going to help us understand what it means that God is for us. So the question becomes then, who can be against us? Well, God is at the very top of the universe, right? There is nothing in heaven or on earth that can come against the creator of the universe. If the whole universe had a cosmic organizational chart like your company may have, God, it would be very big, first of all, uh, but God would be at the very top, right? No one can come against God. God's sovereignty over all things is throughout this passage today. 
that God is, is working all things, and he's involved in all things. People, now you may, don't misunderstand this passage, people will come against us, right? We will have difficulties ahead. This verse is not an assurance of no trouble in the world, but it does echo Psalm 118.6, which says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear, for what can man do to me? And so what Paul wants us to see is that if the God of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing creator is for us, then who can stand against us? Who can stand against us, church? No one. Then he asks a second question in verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? He asks the question, but he prefaces it with something very important that we can't just run past. He says, God has given us his son. He did not just have anyone go to the cross for his people, right? But Paul says he gave his own son. He had his own son go to the cross. To those of you who are parents in the room, what matters more to you than your children, than your kids? This is the hardest thing imaginable, right, for God to send his own son to go to the cross to die for his people. And so Paul makes this point because he, then he says, how will he not give us all things? If he's done the most important thing, the most difficult thing, then giving us all that we need is easy for him, right? That's the argument that Paul's trying to make here. It's cake. And the all things here, again, we're going we're gonna to see the connection between Romans 8, 28 and this passage over and over this morning. But this is connected to the all things from last week. God is working all things for our good. And he's working all things that we might find salvation in him and worship him for eternity. And Paul's saying, if he's already given his son, that's, that's easy for him. He's done the hardest thing. Jesus going to the cross and the real work has already been finished, right? And so we're meant to walk away from this verse certain of our salvation. Peter, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, kind of echoes this the point that Paul's making. And he says it so well. He says, His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, anything that we need as Christians in this life, we have. If you're following Jesus today, God will give you anything you need to continue on. Does this mean all earthly things, like anything that you want in life, like money, wealth, comfort, no, and that will be abundantly clear from the rest of the passage. But God wants us to be certain of our salvation. We have two more questions left that Paul asks here. And the next two questions are really related, and they kind of pull us back into the courtroom scene. If, you, if you've been uh, with Grace for a while, you've seen Paul throughout the book of Romans um, bring us into like a courtroom scene where he uses language of justice and courtroom. 
So take a look at verse 33 and 34. Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So the two questions here are really, who can bring a charge and who is to condemn? Now, what are we supposed to answer to those? No one, right? You guys have got to be louder to answer this no one question. Okay, so no one can come against us, right? No one can bring a charge, and no one is to condemn. And in verse 33, after Paul asking the question, he says, it is God who justifies. That's his reason. So what does justified mean? It means, we've been talking a lot about justification. It means that those who put their faith in Christ are pardoned for their sins. It means that we're made righteous in the sight of God. And here and other places in the Bible, we see that it is actually God who has declared us not guilty, right? Pardoned. In the courts of heaven, God has declared those who trust in Christ not guilty forever. So Paul then asks the question, well then, who can bring a charge against God's elect? God's elect just means God's chosen, and that's you if you're trusting in Christ. Think of it this way. Think of being brought uh, before a king for a crime. And this is a, a good king. He's a just king who um, everyone respects, but he has absolute power in his land. And think about if you actually committed the crime. But then the king brings you before him, and he, he gives you a pardon. He says, I'm going to declare you not guilty, right? Innocent of the charges. No one could dare bring a charge against you after this all-powerful king has said, not guilty, and pardon you, right? He's the highest ruler of the land, and he's declared you justified. There's really no one left to condemn you. Even if a powerful lawyer comes along to this king who's pardoned you and says, hey, I want to bring a charge against this person. What's the king going to say? He's going to say, who are you to question my judgment? I have already declared this person innocent. I've said not guilty. Go away, right? He's going to be angry at the lawyer. Likewise, God has made his judgment if you're trusting in Christ for you. God has declared you not guilty through Jesus. So who can bring a charge against God's people? No one, right? So then Paul says, who is to condemn? Well, if you remember back several weeks ago, we've been in Romans 8 for a while. Romans 8.1, Paul told us that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful truth that there's no condemnation. And so the, the answer is the same here, but Paul gives us extra reasoning. He really preaches the gospel to answer the question of who can condemn. He says that Jesus died and was raised for us, and not only that, but he's at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. 
if we really grasp this, we, we see how amazing it is. Jesus is shown to be at the right hand of God. That, that really shows his power and authority, right? And we have a heavenly advocate in Christ. So Paul's saying the most powerful has died and was raised for you, and he's in heaven constantly remembering you and advocating you and reminding the courts of heaven not guilty. And so Paul says, how could anyone condemn you? You have an advocate in the courts of heaven interceding on your behalf. This whole thing is planned for our salvation, our certain salvation. So at the end of these verses, these questions, we're not left wondering, will God save us if you're trusting in Christ? We're meant to be certain with a rock-solid confidence that God will save those who are trusting in Christ. That's what you're meant to walk away from these questions, believing. So Pastor Ray Ortland says this about the passage, God considers our case closed in our favor, not because he has lowered his standards or he's lost the stomach for punishment, but because of the justice of his law has been satisfied for us at the cross. So what does it matter to us to have assurance of our salvation, to be certain about our salvation? How does that really affect our day-to-day? We'll talk more about this at the end, but at least two kind of applications right now. First, when we sin, when we sin and disobey God, it's important for us to have assurance of salvation. Now, the Bible is full of reasons why we should not go on sinning um, and presume upon God's grace, right? We should fight our sin in our daily life. We've, we've read that in the book of Romans chapter 7 already and chapter 6. Yet we can find comfort in the assurance of our forgiveness despite our offense. When we sin, there's no need to run away from God, right? We can run to Him knowing that He has forgiven us already, And our assurance of salvation helps us do that. Secondly, when we fear death. So no matter what age you are in this room, if you're young or old, one day you will fear death, right? You'll become afraid of death. It's coming one day for all of us. When we're assured of our salvation, we know that when we reach judgment day, Jesus will welcome us with what open arms into heaven. And what a beautiful truth that is. And so there's no reason for us to fear death as Christians. And so it's important for us to remember our salvation is certain and sure. Now we can stop there, and that's amazing truths for us to chew on for days, right? We're secure in our salvation. What wonderful news. But the deep well that is Romans 8 doesn't stop there. The gospel doesn't stop there. It gets even better than that. So verses 35 through 39 tells us that we can be certain of God's love for us in Christ. Let's read the first two verses, 35 through 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the main question that we're going to be asking for the rest of our time together. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Those are some tough verses to read, right? And they really frame the question for us of who can separate us from the love of Christ. Much of Romans 8 has been written in the context of suffering, with suffering in mind. And Paul is giving us a list here of potential things that have the potential to separate us from the love of Christ, or at least we may think they do. So what's in the list? Well, look at verse 35. Tribulation is the first thing we see. And that's just a big word that means great suffering. Distress means extreme anxiety or pain internally. Persecution means people being hostile to you for your faith. Famine was a common thing in Paul's day. Um, not the, the, in the Roman Empire, not having enough food to eat. And it's still a common thing today in many parts of the world. Nakedness, now this is not just nakedness in general, right? But he's saying uh, not having enough clothes, or he could be talking about being brought before people and stripped down to no clothes for humiliation. Danger, general danger from harm. Sword, the... um, danger from being killed by someone, right? These things are great sufferings that may cause someone to doubt God's love for them. None of these things are easy. None of them are really minor inconveniences either, right? All of them involve great difficulty and pain. And Paul, who's writing this, is no stranger to these things. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25 through 27. You don't have to uh, turn there. It'll be on the screen. Paul says, telling his own story of his experiences on his missionary journeys, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So feel the context here of Paul writing these things. Someone who has experienced the difficulty that Paul is asking the question, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Now, sitting in a nice, comfortable, air-conditioned hotel ballroom, we might be tempted to read past these things, right? But Paul goes on. In verse 36, he frames the question even more. He says, As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So, Paul is quoting Psalm 44 here, and in Psalm 44, the psalmist is lamenting the trouble that Israel is facing against their enemies, and the psalmist expressed deep pain and anguish and is asking, God, where are you in this trouble? And the psalmist is feeling as if God has abandoned his people, 
When you think of a, a sheep being led to the slaughter, what do you think about, right? The, the sheep's hopeless. They are going to be killed. They are going to be slaughtered, right? They are going to die. And so why does Paul quote this psalm here? He wants to continue to frame the question for us. Does any earthly difficulty or suffering separate us from God's love? Even being killed, even being led to the slaughter. So maybe this morning you've felt the weight of great suffering in your life. Maybe you've felt distress. Maybe you've experienced tribulation. And maybe in that suffering you've asked, does God really love me? Is God really for me? Many times our suffering does cause us to ask those questions. And it's really, really important in those times to have an answer to the question, does God love us? Is he for us? Tim Keller, who was a pastor in New York City, recently died of cancer. He says about suffering that no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful in our career, something will inevitably ruin it. And suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. So Keller's saying, no matter what we do, we cannot avoid suffering in this life. In this fallen world that's full of sin and evil, it's part of being here on earth. We can try to avoid it, but it's going to come. And Jesus promises it. In John 16, he tells his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. The NIV says, in this world you will have trouble. So that's the frame for the question. Can anyone or anything separate us from the love of Christ, even these great troubles? Thankfully, we are not left wondering the question, the answer to that question. Verse 37 gives us the answer. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, in all these things, we have victory in Christ. Paul actually uses the word here, super conquerors. It's not enough to just have victory, but super victory, right? Read this closely because there's an important distinction here. Paul doesn't say that we're more than conquerors despite these things that I've listed. He doesn't say, even though we walk through hardship, difficulty, suffering, but in he says, in these things, we are more than conquerors. And that's not an accident. That's what Paul really believes. Again, it's connected to Romans 8, 28. Let's, let's go ahead and read it again. It says, and we know that for the good, or for those that, who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So Paul believes that all things, even these things, these difficult things, in them we are more than conquerors because God is working for our good. It means that not only are we given the strength to bear these things, but at the end there's victory, there's conquering. 
Where's the final victory? It's in heaven, right? Last week, Steve talked about um, when we're glorified at the end, right? That's going to be in heaven with Jesus. We'll be made new forever, and each trouble that we face in this life brings us one step closer to that victory in heaven, the final victory in heaven. And how do we obtain this victory? Paul tells us, how do we become conquerors? It's through Christ, right? Through Him who loved us. We might be tempted, and I've often heard people quote this passage, kind of with us as the focus on the conquerors, right? But who's really doing the conquering? Who has given the victory? It's only through Him who loved us. And so all glory and honor goes to Jesus for the victory, for the conquering, for the conquering and suffering. And then Paul, in verses 38 and 39, wants to provide us with even more personal certainty in the love of God. Let's read these verses together. Verse 38 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an amazing passage. And Paul shows us his personal certainty that this is going to happen. He says, for I am sure. Paul's convinced that none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. Even he even he's experienced this suffering that we talked about. So if the list above could not do it, could one of these things that he lists here separate us from the love of Christ? No, right? So we're given a list of contrasting things here. Let's, let's look at, at what Paul lists here. He says life or death, angels or rulers, that probably means supernatural powers, present or future powers. He just lists that one by itself, nor powers. He's probably talking about human or supernatural powers. And he says height or depth or anything else. And I've heard these verses described as an unstoppable stream of God's love coming from him to us. All of these things are kind of obstacles that Paul presents that might get in the way of that stream of love flowing from God to us. And Paul is sure that nothing can stop this stream because God is so strong. In fact, not only can nothing stop the stream, but everything that tries to present itself only increases the flow of God's love to us, right? So let's, let's look at these things again. Anything in life? No, we've already seen that God continues to pour out his love and his goodness through anything in life. Dark spiritual powers... No, God's love is more powerful than any dark spiritual power in the world. Things downstream in the future that we might worry about, can that separate us from God's love? No, God's love overpowers those too. So you might say, well, there's one up there, definitely, that separates us from God's love, death, right? But even something like death, Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. How is it gain? Because in death, 
we are plunged into the love of Christ forever, for eternity. And so Paul lists one more thing at the end for the, the but, I call him the but what if guy. You know, the, if you're a teacher or a professor, maybe you know this person that sits at the back and, you know, when you say all these things, he says, but what if? Um, so, but what if? Paul's anticipating the but what if guy and he says, anything in all creation, anything, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, right? And he lists all these things to help us be sure. I'm going to quote Tim Keller again. He's said so many great things about God's love and suffering. Speaking of this kind of love, he says, the only love that won't disappoint you is the one that can't change, that can't be lost, that is not based on the ups and downs of life or how well you live. And it's something that not even death can take away from you. God's love is the only thing like that. So church, what do we say after these verses? What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. We can be absolutely certain of God's love for us in Christ, but we do have one question that we have left to answer, and that's something that we should ask ourselves. What do we do with this salvation and love that's so graciously given to us? I want to first help the non-Christian in the room answer that question. You may be here today and you've never put your faith in Christ. And really there's only one answer to the question for you, and that is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you can do that today. No matter what background you come from, no matter what you've been told, the truth about God is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. You, have, you maybe have been told you can't know what's going to happen to you when you die. You can't know if you're going to go to heaven or not. You may have been told you can't know if God really loves you or not. But I tell you today that you can be certain of those things if you put your faith in Christ if you put your faith in Christ, there's no one left to condemn you and nothing can separate you from God's love in Christ forever. And so I call you to trust him today. And if you are a Christian this morning, I think there's many takeaways from this passage, but here's three. The first is share this certain love and salvation with the world. It's the greatest news in all the world, right? Right? The reality that we can be sure that we'll be loved and secure in Christ forever is so amazing that we shouldn't be able to keep it to ourselves. This is not only a personal message to us, but it's news worth sharing, and it's news that must be shared. No other faith provides this kind of certainty. If you ask your friends, how will they know that they'll be in heaven or if God loves them, chances are they won't be able to answer. But you as a Christian can point them here. You can point them and answer the question and say, with Jesus, you can know. So let's share this certain love and salvation with the world. The second thing is to risk for God's glory. In his book on the spread of early Christianity, Rodney Stark shares the story of the plagues that happened in the Roman Empire in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. 
These plagues were really ravaging the cities of the Roman Empire, and the death toll was so high, they think up to one-third of the people in the cities died during this time. They didn't have modern health care or hygiene practices, and this caused many people to flee the cities to the countryside to save themselves, especially wealthy people, but also even physicians would flee the city and not care for people. But many Christians stayed behind in the cities to care for people during this time, and pastors even encouraged their congregations to risk helping people even though they might get the plague and die. And there's evidence that this actually saved many lives during the pandemic. Just taking care of basic needs for people changed the ballgame for a lot of people. And because of this, the gospel spread even more among the Roman Empire, among people in the Roman Empire after the plague. So what would cause these believers to stay behind in the cities and risk death to care for their neighbors? How could they have the confidence and courage to do this, even facing death by plague? They believed Romans 8, right? They knew that nothing, not even a plague or death from a plague, could separate them from the love of Christ. They really believed this. John Piper says it like this, on the far side of every risk, even if it results in death, the love of God triumphs. This is the faith that frees us to risk for the cause of God. It's not heroism or lust for adventure or courageous self-reliance or efforts to earn God's favor, but it's childlike faith in the triumph of God's love that on the other side of all of our risks, For the sake of righteousness, God will still be holding us. We will be eternally satisfied in Him, and nothing will have been wasted. So church, let's risk for God's glory. Finally, we can have peace and joy in suffering because of the truths that we read here. This passage gives us the confidence really to thrive in suffering. And you may be suffering greatly this morning and say to me, that's impossible. We cannot thrive in suffering. You may be walking through something this morning that makes you feel like God has deserted you. And if that's you this morning, I I hear you. I don't want to downplay the pain that comes when we suffer. In the last few years, I've experienced great loss in my own life and felt the sting of suffering. But I do want to tell you this morning what Jesus says to you and me in our suffering and in our pain. John 16, says, I have said these things to you, this is Jesus talking, that you may have peace. In the world, you will have peace tribulation, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so with Jesus, with Romans 8, we can confidently have peace and joy amidst our suffering. Jesus says to us in our suffering, have peace, take heart, have joy. And so Christian, no matter what you're going through, 
no matter how difficult it is, no matter how painful it is, this is what Jesus says to you. He says, I love you. Nothing can separate you from my love. So take heart, because I've overcome the world. And the greatest news is that there is no ending to the story of God's love and salvation. It is eternal. There will be an ending to your suffering one day. One day Jesus will return and make all things new. There will be no more pain, no more suffering. And so in the meantime, we can take joy and peace in the promise and certainty that nothing can separate us from, our love, from his love and our salvation is absolutely secure in him. And so let's pray together and then worship him. God, we thank you for your love. God, may we feel your love this morning. May we know it in our heart. God, may we be absolutely certain that you love us, that our salvation is secure in you if we put our trust and faith in Christ. God, we pray that this would give us rock-solid confidence to go into the everyday things of life and live lives that glorify you, God. May we have joy and peace in our suffering that only comes from knowing how much you love us and how secure we are in you. So God, would you use us in this world that has great pain and suffering and God, this morning, would you fill our hearts with worship for who you are, God? We want to worship you. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.